first time I saw you, it felt like it was meant to be. There was between us. Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Detroit-born, Los Angeles-based jazz singer and songwriter Jesse Palter. She opened up about quite a bit, like her new 2022 CD, Nothing Standard, that draws inspiration from both masterful composers and vocalists who composed and interpreted the Great American Songbook as she herself pushes the music forward. This album harkens back to her early days in her home of Detroit, as a music-obsessed 13-year-old hearing Miles Davis for the very first time, while also being entrenched in the pop music of the era. She is full of passion and insight. Enjoy the story. Thank you for taking a minute out. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for, for having me. Absolutely. So Nothing Standard is coming out during a time where we've largely had no live music. The world's been turned upside down. What is it like to release this album right now with the opportunity to actually perform this material live? Well, I think it's a strange time to, to birth a project into the world, but also a really necessary time to keep creating art and to, to keep finding new ways to release music and to connect with your audiences. And for me, the impetus is, is always about what drives the music. And I've, I've had this music weighing on my shoulders for many years now. It's a huge part of my musical DNA. And as I was thinking about my next creative steps, I just kept coming back to the fact that this music has been recorded in the can. I, I, my career has taken some unique twists and turns since I've recorded it. And it felt like the only way for me to go forward was to sort of take a little bit of a backward step, put this music out there, and give my supporters a, a more clear-cut picture of who I am as a composer, as a vocalist, all of the different facets of my artistry before I could really step forward and, and start creating new stuff. So I, I'm not necessarily consumed by maybe what I would have been consumed by pre-pandemic in terms of how things are going to perform. I felt like I just needed to do this for myself and for the people that have supported my, my music for many years now. And I'm really, I, I feel really relieved that it's out there now. You know, it's what good is hoarding music? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, we need to hear it. And, you know, there are original <laughs> compositions. you got a wonderful yeah. ensemble of cats. you got... Michael, oh, Ben, Gregory. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you got a powerful lineup behind you. What was the conversation like? How easy was it to actually put Lay These Down and get it out? We went in the studio as a pretty well-oiled machine. We, um, both Mike and I had been working together for several years and had a very close collaborative relationship. He's been a mentor of mine and and a teacher and... We had done hundreds of gigs together, both Mike um, and myself, and then also Ben as well. Uh, hundreds of gigs. At, at that time, we were doing hundreds of gigs a year. It felt really natural going in there. I had always been a fan of Gregory Hutchinson's playing. Um, I can spew off countless records that I've just burned to the ground listening to over and over again because he's just the consummate, consummate musician and consummate swing drummer. So I was really, really familiar with his playing and him just sort of locking it down on, on the, the drum end of things felt really, really natural. And it was, I think, 
two days of tracking as a as a with the rhythm section and then and then there were a few there were a few things in in post production that we worked on but for the most part it was it was your typical jazz recording process and i think that was really integral to keeping you know the heartbeat of this project honest was to just document the, really what was going on at that specific moment in time so you know they say in life it's really good to have a good signature and i don't ever really see the front of albums being signed, but you got a great signature. What was oh. kind of the method? What was what was the kind of the idea behind doing that? I work with this great group of girls, Gold Point Studios. They're phenomenal, and we have also. I'm like a huge proponent of collaboration, and I think when you surround yourself with creative creative people and creative energy and you're able to just throw a bunch of spaghetti on the wall and figure out what's what sticks you know you take your ideas and and then other people can help polish them and and turn them spin them you know into gold and that's what this this team does and so I knew that I just wanted it to feel representative of the music we also um, both of us myself and the uh, visual team work from a synesthetic place. So a lot of times when I'm writing music, I, I see colors, I speak in sort of weird, weird tongue. It's all very like visual to me. So a lot of times as I'm composing, I have a visual in mind and they were, they operate from the same place too. So we talked a lot about colors and, and, you know, throwing all sorts of like just strange, ideas out and and none of it felt awkward at all it just felt very stream of consciousness and then they they brought those ideas to life so i'm so glad that you like it that means a lot the visual i think is always important to really sort of enhance the sound without a doubt so during this COVID time we all had time to kind of be self-reflective more time with ourselves what did you learn about yourself that maybe you didn't realize before this pandemic started that's going to make you stronger as you get out and perform live more and promote this new album? I think one of the silver linings of this just hor horrific time that we'll probably be unpacking for the next several years was that I got to spend quite a bit of time alone with my thoughts. And I think in doing so, in, in those moments of, of getting quiet and being like, man, I'm an artist in a pandemic. Like my entire livelihood is at stake you know, right now, can I keep, can I, I got to figure some way out to pay my rent. Can I keep doing this? And those moments of getting quiet, I always heard music. I always, I always went back to the blank page. I always got inspiration to write another song. And so that to me was sort of the, the little voice inside saying, keep going, keep figuring it out. Um, artists are inherently creative, so when the going gets tough, we creatively figure out ways to to get going. And like many other musicians, I spent the early days in the pandemic just sort of figuring out how to be my own producer, you know, get my studio rig set up in my, at the time, one-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment uh, in the living room and try and make it sound good and, and be my own engineer and and my own videographer and just trying to find ways to, to kind of keep going. And then I had moments, I had these really, I felt fortunate. I had these moments of just like real 
divine inspiration and where I had like a very clear vision of what the next step needed to be. And, and that felt like very much a silver lining because I just sort of like was fueled by the creative energy behind that feeling. And one of those moments, one of those aha moments was very much release this music. I mean, this, this album, Nothing Standard, is a retrospective album. Um, it's music that I had composed and in the can for several years. And yet it's timeless music. You know, I ended up taking a little bit of a turn. Uh, as I mentioned before, I released a singer-songwriter record. Since recording this album, I've always had my feet wet in a lot of different types of music. Genre is very fluid for me. But the language of jazz is something that I've studied. I went to school as a vocal jazz major. I take it very seriously. I try and um, honor the tradition. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for the history of this, this beautiful music. And it felt very important to me to release my own specific version of that. And one of those moments came from just being, you know, home alone, trying to figure out what the next step forward is without any gigs on the table because who's going to go to a venue and, you know, subject themselves to this crazy virus at, at, at the height of, you know, different variants. Um, and so I'm grateful for some of that time to reflect and then some of the, cur the courage of my conviction that came out of it. So let's go back to the beginning of your life. How did the Jaws of Jazz get into your life? I like how, that, the Jaws did, of Jazz. <laughs> yes. <laughs> how did all Yeah, see, the Spielberg theme, it won't stop. So, <laughs> man alive. I didn't realize that was going to be a, a reoccurring metaphor. But so, so how, how did all of this begin for you? I had a natural propensity to want to improvise. I, I was just sort of a lover of music. I came from a very musically inclined family. My dad's mother was a childhood opera singer, and my dad was raised in a household surrounded by a lot of different types of music. My mom, though, she I wouldn't say she's musically inclined. <laughs> she's a huge music fan. And both parents exposed me to just a wide array of music from the time I was really little. And I think I inherited the muscle probably from my dad's side of the family. So I was singing really early and they supported it. I was a theater kid. But the thing that I loved about musical theater was the songs and the stories. And I mean, those are, those are the standards from the Great American Songbook. But I was not a, I was like a, a theater kid rebel because I always wanted to interpret everything my own way and put my own spin on it. That doesn't work in theater quite like it does in a, an expressive a medium like jazz. So I, you know, I was doing a production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which really does not lend itself to a, um as much improvisation as, let's say, an Oscar Hammerstein or, you know, Rogers and Hart. Um, but I decided during dress rehearsal that I was just going to totally embellish the melody from start to finish on my first solo song. And I got yelled at pretty uh, intensely by my teacher. And then she pulled my mom aside and she said, you know, she's got an ear for improvisation. You should probably experience 
exposure to some jazz music. And, and they had played a lot of Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra, even Miles Davis around the house prior to that point. I was in middle school at the time. My middle school band teacher gave me a trumpet, and I spent that summer really learning how to play the trumpet. And then I came back and played the trumpet in jazz bands. And kind of the rest was history. I loved the feel of swing. It was like an electric feeling in my body, and it still is to this day. I just, I freaking love it. I love it. I love, 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 love it. And I wanted to just soak it all up. So I then sort of spent a ton of time listening to horn players and um, naturally being a singer and having having an ear I would memorize, you know, Sonny Stitt solos, Miles Davis solos, uh, Ben Webster solos, and, and, and sing them back. And then um, as time went on, I, I sort of started dissecting the theory behind it and figuring out how it all works. That was really my first foray into, into jazz music and into improvisation. I went to school at University of Michigan School of Music as a vocal jazz and contemplative studies major. If you ask me what that means, I still probably couldn't tell you. <laughs> contemplative studies. I think it means I spent a lot of time in a practice room contemplating my spells and arpeggios. Um, but the, the, the real school for me was connecting with Michael Gellick and spending, you know, 12 hours a day with a voracious appetite to learn sitting at the piano and arranging together and writing music together and really through that finding my own voice, learning from the masters, studying the greats, but really trying to find my own voice. And, and so I, even though I went to college as a jazz major, I really, I like to say I went to the school of Mike Jellick. Uh, he taught me a lot. So what was the very first live jazz show you saw that really, really inspired you? I saw Ray Brown at Bird of Paradise with Oscar Peterson. And that was nuts. And I was just like, give this to me. Give, give this to me. I think it was actually, I, it was probably Oscar Peterson's show. But, you know, I was a, a freshman in college. And, and, I mean, it doesn't get better than that, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was pretty incredible. And um, I remember also being really touched when I saw Diane Reeves, who's just a masterful vocalist. Gosh, I've done so many shows throughout the year. I feel really fortunate that my life has been filled with so much music and so much live music. And that was a really hard part of the last few years was, was feeling that void. But yeah, I definitely... I will never forget that that Oscar Peterson Ray Brown experience. So you know, learning around you know the likes of of you know Christian McBride and a lot of others that have been around for a long time that you yeah. either learn from or pick with. What have you learned from kind of the the legends and luminaries and masters of this craft that you in turn have used to not only grow as a musician but teach younger players you get around? Yeah, I think it's important to soak up as much information, as much knowledge as you can about this, this art form. And then when it comes time to getting on the bandstand and doing it, trying to forget it all and just sing, play from the heart. That's really what actually the, the first song on the album is really about dealing with. It's, it's, it's about my modus operandi of every time I, I step on stage is really just trying to deal with the music and, you know, life, life is the meaning of this tune. 
getting inside the song and and giving it your all every time you step on the bandstand. But that really comes from a place of of soaking up as much about this art form and this medium as possible, and then really just trying to just make it a soulful experience. Every day you wake up, you have the chance to create and make music. What do you like the best about being a professional musician? Um, what do I like the best? These are great questions. I think I, I just love being surrounded by creative energy. I, like I said, I really thrive in a collaborative uh, setting. And so I kind of get off on, on being around other creatives and the ability to make something out of nothing is still sort of this elusive, profound experience to me that I feel so grateful. I get to call my job because I, I don't really approach it like it's a job. I approach it like it's like it's my passion, and each one of these songs feels like it's a child of mine. And um, it's a really profound, almost magical experience to, like, just have an, a nugget of a seed of an idea and then watch it transform into a full-blown song and then eventually get to play that nugget of an idea that has transformed into a full-blown song with musicians that you respect and, and, and see what they bring to the table. And it's a really, um, you know, the, the music business, as you know, as you know is not uh, as glamorous as people might think it is. But that specific creative process, it's always, always so magical. And it's, um, it's really kind of the glamorous, part of the business to me. It always comes back to the music. It always comes back to the creative. And as a composer, for me, it always comes back to the song. If you have a dream tonight, you run into a version of your, a younger version of yourself around the time you were starting to become a professional. And you hmm. could give your younger self one piece of advice based on what you've learned throughout all of these years. What would you tell your younger version? I'd give her a big hug I'd say keep going, and I would say trust yourself. Trust yourself. Listen to your listen to your gut. Uh, I think that the power that we have as creatives is in our is in our ideas, is in our music. You know, I can't dictate what is going to happen around me in terms of the evolution of the industry side of the, of this business. Um, and I certainly have had my fair share of creative losses and burns and drama. <laughs> Nobody can take away my ability to create. And that's what fuels me. And so I would say to her, just keep creating. Just keep going. Because eventually, if you sing loud enough, someone's going to hear you. Right on. So let's say we get off the phone, a jazz DeLorean pulls up in front of your house. You can go anywhere in time and see anybody in the history of jazz lives. Where are you going? Um, Who are you going to see? I would probably see, you know, the band on Kind of Blue. I would probably be a, a fly on the wall in the Kind of Blue sessions and just hear Miles and Cannonball and Paul Chambers, Jimmy Cobb, and just, you know, sit there and 
just soak it all up. Wynton Kelly, I mean, I I would I would love to be there then. You know, I actually had the opportunity to ask Jimmy Cobb at one point, what was it like? Do you even understand the magnitude, the magnanimousness of what you did? And he was oh like, we just, he just said, we just, we, he, he said exactly this, man, we just played our buns off. That's all he said. That, wow. that's, that was the quote. And I don't know wow. that, that you understand what you're doing at the time because it's not like, it's just not that moment. So, yeah, that would be wonderful just to see the energy that would have gone in there. And to even see how Miles directed everybody, whether it was verbal or nonverbal. Mm. Absolutely. You know? Oh, my God. You are one <laughs> lucky dude to have had that conversation with him. You know, it's, the, improvisation is really a form of meditation. It's at times where I've been anxious and felt very ungrounded. You have to be in the moment. You have to be you have to be grounded to be inside the music in that way, um, and so I can see how they would have all been just like really present and just really focused on just playing their butts off, and yeah. you know not realizing that it was going to be one of the most important pieces of work in this art form. I wouldn't be without that record. I mean, there are a lot of records that are like that for me, but without that record, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a jazz musician. So I, you know, I remember in 95, I was taking a trip to Seattle and a friend of mine gave that to me in the old Walkman. And I think about that mm -hmm. and I think about how many musicians have told me that album. I, I just, so many jazz dreams and careers have been launched from that one single recording. It's staggering. Totally. It's a special yeah. recording. Yeah, it is. It certainly is. So, you know, speaking of, you know, music and recordings and getting the magic back, hopefully, you know, as the world starts opening up, more live shows happen. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, what do you hope we all collectively realize about the power of live music when we do kind of return in earnest from both musicians and the audience? I think it's such a gift to be able to be in a room witnessing somebody play live music. And I just hope that, um, and I feel that as performers and as audience members, that we don't take it for granted, the ability to collectively be together and experience art in real time. It's a really, really special experience. And it's a sacred experience. And it deserves quite a bit of respect and appreciation. And I hope that um, audience members realize how important it is to artists to have that opportunity to to perform their music live. It's, it's felt a little bit for me like I've been deprived of oxygen for the last couple of years without the ability to make music in that way. And not because I need to hear people's applause, not because I need to stand uh, center stage in front of a crowd, but because there's an energy that is addicting about being in a room and playing music and the surround sound that you get with got a good band behind you and you guys are all really present in the moment and just vibing and jamming and in flow. And to not have that experience and have the ability to share that with people that appreciate it has been really 
really, really a struggle for the last couple of years. So, I, you know, I got to go hear some live music last night. A friend of mine was playing at a, a great jazz club out here in Los Angeles, and I just sat there the entire time feeling tremendously grateful. And I think it's important to keep that as things continue to reopen in the back of our minds. And, and I hope that we can all put effort into showing the artists uh, that is on the bandstand how, how grateful we are that we have the opportunity to be there together experiencing that. So everyone has a perception or an idea of who they think you are, your family, your friends, your fans, but ultimately you live your life. You have a perception of yourself. Who do you think you are? These are all, I feel like I'm in, I love this. I, I feel like I'm in like a therapy session, but also a jazz <laughs> radio interview. It's so great. Um, who I think I am? What a loaded question. You know, I think that I, I am a, there's, there's the version of me that's inside the music and there's a version of me that's outside the music. And for a while it was really hard for me to separate the two. As I've mentioned throughout this conversation a few different times, my career has been an important focus in my life and something that I'm really passionate about. And, you know, it's tough. It's really tough to, to make a living as a full-time creative professional. Um, and it's been something that I've dedicated a lot of my life to. Um, but I have had some, some stuff that's, you know, I, I've been burned for sure. So I, I focused on who I am outside of the music, which I think really feeds who I am inside the music. And I just want to be a good person and a kind person and um, a present person and, you know, a loving uh, a daughter and sister and friend and a dog mom. And, and then I think if I'm able to put, like, good energy into that, then it will fuel, it will give me the fodder that I need to be a good creative professional as well and, and give me life experiences that I can then hopefully authentically pour into the writing of my songs, the composing of my music, and the interpretation of my music as well. So I think at the end of the day, if people just say, like, I'm a, I'm a, good, I'm a good girl, I will uh, I'll be, be really happy. And whether or not that refers to my music or not, I have come to realize that it's important for me to recognize that I'm more than just a musician, for sure. Very well said, Jesse. Thank you for oh, opening up. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for the therapy session. How much do I owe you? Oh, it's I fine. You, you gave <laughs> you it to us in choice. music. Yeah. It, it's um, me repaying you for the music, so it's all good. <laughs> I can't tell you how meaningful it is to be able to have these conversations, and it means a lot to me that this project is out. It, it feels like a special um, body of work for me, and I, I appreciate so much you taking the time to talk with me and to support it. It means yeah. the whole world. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players and singers in Detroit, Los Angeles, Kansas City, and spots all over the globe, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Jessie for her time, music, and stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino in the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time. Go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.